Good day, nerds. This is Megan McCarthy Bianc coming at you with another Cantina conversation. Um, in this episode, we talked to Lydia King, author of The Half Life of Ruby Fielding. Lydia King is a published author. She's published a handful of books, both fiction and nonfiction. And um, it was really, really interesting to talk to her about this book and the research that went into it. Without further ado, here is Lydia King. We've got Lydia King here talking about her book, The Half-Life of Ruby Fielding, coming out on May 1st, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Correct. Okay, cool. Thank you so much for, you know, taking the time to meet with us today. This book was, it was interesting. And, you know, I, I, I do like historical fiction and um, I don't know, I guess you just can't get enough of World War II. So I was really uh, interested and, and happy to dig into this one. So, um, you know, thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. So um, how about we start off with like a synopsis of the book so that our um, listeners can follow along with the conversation? Sure. So um, this book, uh, as you said, takes place in World War II. Um, It actually happens stateside in New York and in and around Brooklyn. And it features um, a brother-sister duo, Will and Maggie Scripps. And Will is sort of secretly working for the Manhattan Project. Um, So sort of helping early on in the stages of developing the atom bomb and his sister, who is uh, painfully shy, is has just gotten a job at the Brooklyn Navy Yard as a welder. And they're sort of going about their lives when this mysterious woman shows up, um, apparently intoxicated under the under the back stairs of their home in Brooklyn. And, um, you know, they take care of her for a day or so and figure she's going to be on their way. But she ends up sort of entwining herself in their lives and things get very messy very quickly. And it's a suspense novel, sort of a thriller. So that's, that's what it's about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I really liked all the characters in this book. You know, I think they were very unique and it was a very unique placing to Will was very intriguing. And I thought it was interesting, like how, like his physical stature at that time period, you know, people would assume certain things. And I guess it was just like a time period where everyone was doing what they could. Mm-hmm. And, you know, doing their part to chip in. And he wasn't like, I wouldn't say he was underestimated, maybe in terms of like his intelligence and, you know, in terms of what he could do. He seemed like a kind of a character that kept having to prove himself a little bit. But then like mm-hmm. the people he works with. Oh, gosh, I forget his boss's name. The woman. Mrs. I mean, Rivers. Yeah. Yeah. He's he that his interactions with her kind of like flip it a little bit where he's just like wait a second like what like wait am i you know because he thinks he's on top of it he thinks he's on top of everything and he's paid he's paying attention but he's not paying enough attention and um or or there are other people who are paying more attention than him and it's it was very like eerie and you know i enjoyed a lot of his interactions with uh with rivers mrs rivers yeah it was so, really fun to play around with that um that power dynamic because yeah. you know you have this big hulking muscular i mean he was a football player right right muscular guy who's got you know quite a brain in him he's he's really deeply intelligent and but he also sort of um prides himself on being kind of strong emotionally right mm-hmm. like i don't need any romantic entanglements, women, I don't need women in my life, aside from taking care of his sister, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And then meanwhile, his boss, or the person who seems to be his boss, because she's technically the secretary to mm-hmm. the man who's Mr. Rivers, who's like making all the, the sort of judgment calls and stuff like that. But she just, she constantly throws him off kilter. Like she is always making him feel unsteady. Like he doesn't really know if he's, his place in this job is secure. He doesn't, really know if he um he feels like he's one upping them but he's not 
but then like she sort of proves to him like no 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 we're ahead of you all right all yeah and I I love that power dynamic because she's also um got that stereotype you know she's wearing her demure World War II outfit her bright red lipstick her hair is like kind of perfect and um there's this one line in there that I, I had so much fun when I was writing he was like the women in my life are going to be the death of me because yeah. <laughs> they were always always throwing him off he felt so sure of himself but not around these women that were just affecting his life in a lot of different ways yeah I yeah exactly because even when he thought he had Maggie figured out he eventually slowly realized that wait a second she's not being truthful like I don't know as much as I think I do and yeah um but he also comes to terms like I want to explore the sibling relationships too because they come from like a heartbreaking they have a heartbreaking familial background and with their mom and then Maggie is you know has her episode and then he feels obligated to like take care of her and to look out for her but then he knows like when um or I think it was his name Felix when that all that drama like starts to unfold and they become a little bit more involved with um the mysterious woman and and her dealings then mm-hmm. it's like it's so you know he he knows that he can't really give her Maggie that he can't like really provide for her the you know the way that she might need and or want and it's like at mostly he's just been concerned about they've both been just been concerned about surviving and then it's like all this it's like this drama like all this all this one woman she's just the catalyst and mm-hmm. you know she's the excitement and I thought she was also a very fascinating character before we do that I want to like backtrack this is not your first book right like you have a, a handful of published yes. works mm-hmm. and um when I yeah, look this is my actually it's my number 10 I had to count the other day it's number 10 <laughs> congrats <laughs> double digits <laughs> yeah, thank you um so I've noticed a running theme in your books um <laughs> like toxins and like toxicology so mm-hmm. can we go over like your background and like what kind of like keeps pulling you to that to that theme or exploring all the different ways that that theme can go Sure. Um, so I, the books that I write, I write um, historical fiction, as you know. So Ruby is my fourth historical uh, novel. And, but I also write young adult fiction. And in the young adult realm, they have been fantasy and um, science fiction. And then I also write nonfiction. So I've written Quackery, A Brief History of the Worst Ways to Cure Everything, which I co-wrote with Nate Peterson. And then um, this past fall, we came out with Patient Zero, A Curious History of the Worst diseases, world's worst mm-hmm. diseases. So yeah, I write, I have a medical background. So I'm a physician. Um, I, and an inter, I'm in internal medicine and I'm still practicing. So I'm still seeing patients. I actually was seeing patients this morning <laughs> and I didn't get into writing until about 12, 13 years ago, I would say. So I was sort of halfway into my medical career, like 10 years into my medical career. And I started writing pretty intensely. It's funny because when I first started writing, I didn't put a lot of medicine or anything like that in my books. My first book was Control, which was a young adult um, science fiction novel. Um, And there were some, you know, genetics in there a little bit, but I kept putting, finding myself putting things in there like toxicology and pharmacology and chemistry. And in Ruby, there's a lot of sort of um, natural plant poisons, but there's also the whole history of the making of the atom bomb, right? Mm. The very beginnings of the Manhattan Project, which is physics, which is atomic physics, which is not my forte (laughs) at all. And I think it's really funny because this morning I just was looking on Facebook and my high school physics teacher is just like, I was looking on Amazon. I picked up this book and then I like halfway, like halfway through the first chapter, I realized that you were the author. And I'm like, that's my (laughs) physics teacher. 
talk right? about atoms. It's just great. So um, that's just kind of funny. So yeah, I, I think when I started writing, I separated out my medical life and my writing life. And I, I just sort of didn't let them come together, but I realized it was actually not a bad thing. And um, in the, in my doctor world, it, it was nothing to be ashamed of that I had this creative life. And then yeah. in my creative world, I had this wealth of knowledge and I ended up sharing it with a lot of fellow writers and like giving advice on how to do certain medical scenes and things like that. But it is a nice toolbox to have. Like I am, it's easy for me to learn things about toxicology that I don't know, or, you know, botany and things like that, because I have that science background. So mm-hmm. it's been, it's come in really handy. I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I bet. So like, okay. So I want to like kind of piggyback off of that. What kind of, because your background is not in physics, but you went for it. Um, yes. so, <laughs> so what kind of uh, like research, like how did your process shift maybe a little bit for um, kind of, uh, you know, stepping a little bit out of your comfort zone? So, you know, I did have to read up a little bit about um, how the atom bomb actually was created and the the race for the atom bomb that was mm. happening in the United States at the time. And so, um, so I had some really good books that were helpful for reading. Um, one of them was this fantastic one. I'll see if I can get the title of it because I'm going to get it wrong. Um, that was so interesting because it was specifically about the Manhattan Project. And what it did was it went over all the actual sites where parts of the Manhattan Project took place in and around New York. Mm. And it was great because it was basically like taking a tour of of New York City. And I lived in New York for quite a long time. And so it was easy for me to sort of imagine like, you know, where these buildings were. And I realized some of the buildings were ones that I knew, like I'd walked by. There's one that's near the High Line. Um, that is the um, warehouses that Will is scoping out. And then one of them is um, Pupin Hall, which is the physics building at Columbia University, which is where I went to college. Mm-hmm. So, so that was there. And um, it just came in really handy to have that map of New York. And then once I had that and I had some of the history down, I actually did read um, you know, some articles about uh, uranium enrichment and uranium refining and where were the refining companies, you know, where were they located? And how do you actually enrich uranium? What are the different methods? And so I had to look Mm -hmm. into all that and learn about them because they played into a lot of the things that Will had to do in the book. So to a certain degree, I had to know a lot. I didn't have to know like down to a professional level, how to do a lot of these things. You know, you have to know just enough to be able to write the book and like as far as you need to go, because like I said, physics is not my forte, but it was enough for me to, to be able to paint the picture and give it enough depth so that people understood what Will was doing was really complicated. A lot of it was very, very hush hush. Mm-hmm. And that some of the things that, that he did in the beginning, it's not as simple as like, you get the uranium and you stick it in the bomb. And it's a lot of it was just, where does the uranium come from? Yeah. How do we refine it? How many steps are there? Who does the refining? And like, how do you do the enrichment? And they were literally just tinkering away yeah. every step, just trying to figure it out. And it was fascinating to read about. So yeah. And especially since it's like, but don't tell anybody, don't let anybody figure out what you're doing. And don't, right. Like, Which is why they called it. Just... Yeah. They didn't call it like the bomb project. They called it the Manhattan project yeah. because if the spies heard about it, they would be like, well, what does the Manhattan project mean? That doesn't mean anything. It just means right. place in the, in the, in the world, you know, and it wasn't just happening in Manhattan. There were parts happening in Chicago and Tennessee and all this stuff. It's, it was funny, the cloak and dagger secretive stuff was really, really intense. Like a lot of people in the project 
had no idea what they were doing. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm writing this book and I'm like, I have to have Will know what he's doing kind of. Right. So, so part of what um, is kind of interesting is as you read the book, you see Will putting together, like he understands what's happening. Like he puts it together. And then Mrs. Rivers just like, how did you know that? And he was like, I put two and two together. And yeah. You guys are keeping good secrets, but like, if you're smart enough and you're watching and you're listening, like you, you figure it out. Exactly. Because so. he, you know, and he, I, I love the one part where he was like, well, I saw what you wrote right there on your, on your pad. Like, yeah. it's, He's you like, know, and, and that's right. just like an example of how observant he was and yep. how crucial that was to like how, you know, him being helpful and useful. Yep. And that actually did happen that they would write it as like, um, I think the number 25 was like Mm -hmm. sort of the code number for the isotope that they Mm -hmm. were looking for. And it didn't actually mean uranium. There's no such thing as uranium 25, but like he knew that that was representative of the isotope. And that's one of the ways he figured it out. So I had to give Will clues so that he could figure it out because information is really valuable. Right. Mm -hmm. And so for him to be like, I know what you're doing, which means I can help you more. Mm -hmm. That was, that was really fun to, to write on the page. Yeah. I I imagine. Cause that could have like, he, he wasn't trying to blackmail or anything. He was like, no, like give me more responsibility. I could do more things. Like once I under, like giving me that level of understanding, I could be more useful rather than him saying going the other way with it, which it speaks to his character. Like as a person is he's very like pragmatic and he's very like, you know, logical and he's not. And that's why I think it's so funny how it makes sense that he would kind of like not underestimate the women, but he's just like, doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't give it much thought, which I guess could be the same thing, but it's also it, like, yeah, it is. And then when you think sort of culturally at the time, I think yeah. that's what everybody did. Everybody underestimated women, you know, the sexism was part of the culture. Right. And Will is no exception. He is, mm-hmm. but he, um, I think he is open to the idea that he can be wrong about it. And when he is, sometimes it's to devastating effect. Mm. Um, but, uh, but you're right. He's, he's really ambitious and he's very focused and he's really smart about it. But I, I think that's also his downfall because yeah. ambition is, is a two-way street, you know, it can get you some, some places, but it can also take you to really bad places. Yeah, exactly. And ultimately, you know, the atom bomb is like a horrible horrible thing right mm-hmm. and it's sort of like as you're doing this you're sort of like you know well I think you're a good guy but like do you know what you're getting involved in like right. do you know what you're trying to champion right and there's that that question sort of lingers in the air I think as you're reading it sort of like is he gonna be okay with this like is he gonna be excited to be on on the side of the winners maybe right. someday and realize that this is going to be uh, like this this agent of horrible destruction so I I also like to I also found it fascinating about like, you know, how did other people think about this? How do the physicists feel about it as well? You know? Um, yeah. And yeah, that's interesting to think of like what the mindset might've been back then as where if losing was worse, like the lesser of two evils, I guess, was trying to be on the winning side, unfortunately. Yeah. Cause it's funny because there are all these quotes by Einstein about how he like regrets the work that he did that sort of initiated mm. the, the Manhattan project. They're not real. <laughs> I actually like talked to like the Einstein. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's like the Einstein foundation. It's like the official like people that are associated with his, you know, his legacy. And I was just like, I keep finding these quotes. Are they real? And they're like, they're not real. Uh, But a lot of them are about how he's just like, this is like one of the, my biggest regrets was initiating, um, you know, that letter that I sent to the president that said, we need to get into this race because if we don't, Germany is going to win. Um, but yeah, that, that, 
that quote doesn't actually exist, but, um, but it sort of makes you think there, there are other moments where they, they sort of talk a little bit about it, but it's, it's a hard thing to, you don't want to necessarily admit after you've won a war that what you've done is bad. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, Mm -hmm. yeah. That's why I think like that time period is so fascinating and there are so many different perspectives that you can explore it from and either across the world or even like different roles that people play within the same region. I think that's why it's so, there's so much uh, potential as far as, you know, historical fiction, but also not just with like uh, literature, but with like film and TV and all that. It's, there's like a plethora like of material. Did this experience publishing this one, writing and publishing this one differ mm-hmm. from uh, your previous works or, you know, were, were there, was there anything different? Was there anything like that surprised you maybe, or, or was all, a lot of it, you know, a lot of your process, like kind of the same? Um, I would say in a lot of respects, it was fairly similar. So, you know, all the historical fiction that I've done has taken place in New York. And so as a result of that, um, it's easier for me because since I lived there for a period of time, um, I can see the city and the layout really easily. And so when they talk about this place, I'm like, yeah, I know where that is. So, mm-hmm. it, it, so it makes that easier for me. I, with every single book, I usually end up printing out this gigantic map of the area. And so for this, it was like, you know, lower Manhattan and Brooklyn. And so I had this gigantic map that was basically the size of, you know, a small room. And I would lay down <laughs> on there with my like magnifying glass and just, I would highlight, you know, this is where this is, this is where that is, how they're going to get from A to B, all that kind of stuff. Um, that part kind of was the same, but, you know, I feel like the tone of this book is somewhat different than the other ones because there is, um, I feel like with writing books that take place, the other ones are 1918, 1899 and 1850. When you go back in time that far, there's a certain amount of whimsy that I feel like exists because it's so far removed from modern life. Mm. World War II, still a very, very long time ago. Yeah. And yet, but it still is enough in our culture in shows that we're watching. And, you know, we're talking about our grandparents, you know, living through this, this, this age or great grandparents, that sort of thing, um, that it's still close enough to us that it feels real. And so I felt a lot more pressure, I think, mm-hmm. to, to do it right. Um, interestingly, I feel like it was also in some ways a little darker and in some ways a little bit sexier. I didn't really, I didn't truly ex- like, you know, say like, I'm going to write a book that has like more sex scenes in it or something like that. And, you know, let me be clear. It's not like really on the page, horrible, like very graphic stuff or anything like right, that. But, yeah. <laughs> but it's a bit, there's a little bit more, I would say than some of my other books. And, um, but that's what the characters, that's what came with the characters. Like it right. was, it's a, it's a more mature book. And I think in some ways, and I think some readers will be like, whoa, I kind of not expecting, expecting this, you know, this sort of love triangle that's sort of going on. Mm. Um, but when I wrote the characters, I knew I was like, this is going to be really, they're going to have a hard time trying to figure out what to do, like what the right thing is to do. They are going to be prey to their emotions. They are going Mm -hmm. to be, it's going to be complicated and messy Mm -hmm. and it's messier than I think some of the other books, as far as relationships go. Um, but I, I had fun with it. I had fun writing it because it was a little different. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny. Cause like, oh, it's the half-life of Ruby Fielding, which I, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you kind of played around with that with like the half, the term half-life, mm-hmm. um, with like the science, you know, or of it. Um, but it's not, I was surprised because a lot of it, it, the story is told through the eyes of, uh, Maggie and Will. And so it was like, but, you know, she is kind of like 
the focal point a little bit, even if you're, we're getting a lot of Will and Maggie, it's like, yeah. And, and even then it's like, man, Ruby fooled me. Like she, <laughs> you had me going up until, you know, the appropriate spots. And, but I loved getting to know everyone. And I like, cause you know, you're pulling the reader along and as we're getting like to know the characters and whereas we're getting to know Ruby, it's like, we don't know what to think. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I feel like I, I kept going back and forth with Ruby and then, um, you know, eventually I was just like, well, okay. Like, <laughs> Yeah, she, like yeah, wasn't did not see that coming. So and, you know, it's funny because when I originally wrote the book, there were so the chapters sort of flip between Maggie and Will's perspective. But um, in the book as it stands right now, there are a couple of chapters that are written from Ruby's point of view. And when I originally wrote the book, there were none. So it was mm. only Will and Maggie. And so the whole time, you're like, I would like to get into Ruby's head but I cannot. Mm-hmm. All I'm doing is seeing it from the perspective of Will and, and Maggie. And every time you flip, you flip to a new chapter, you're just sort of like, what is going on with yeah. her? I just don't <laughs> understand what she wants. Like, I just yeah. don't understand what is she doing? And, you know, you get this, this feeling, she's just a super manipulative person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, so my editor made a really wise decision, which is like, you know, I really think you need to put, first of all, the book's about Ruby. I think it's a good idea to put in some, not all, not a ton, but put in a couple of chapters that are from her perspective. So once in a while we get that glimpse, but that glimpse doesn't always tell you the truth either. Right. Right? That's right. always just a sliver section of what she's thinking of at the time. Um, and so I still got to get, I, get, I still got to pull the reader like back and forth and back and forth. And the Ruby chapters would center it just a little bit, but not enough to really make you mm. understand what was going on. And then no. you would just still be like, I was still <laughs> just, en- just a little <laughs> bit, just enough to like pull the reader along even more. Like the, yes. like, you know, guilty pleasure is like the frustration of it. Just like, ah, yes. like- <laughs> you're like, what? Uh, you're like, Do, am I supposed to hate you? I don't understand. Yeah. So a lot of those chapters were written after I'd written the whole book. So the book was done. And then I had to like rewrite like the whole beginning so the um the prologue was was brand new and put in and then every single ruby chapter was also brand new and and put in there so i they were all after the fact so i know a lot of people are like how do you like what's some of the um the process of like writing a novel and like yeah sometimes you finish a book and then you have to completely go in and change things so great yeah yeah Yeah, absolutely (laughs) so like so then was that a little bit different from what you've had to do before or was it kind of you have you found yourself doing that before too done that before I think there were moments where like the last book that I wrote um was opium and absinthe and there are Mm. there were there were places where my editor was just like you just this needs to be you need to bulk up this scene because I like there's just so much more happening here and you're you're just doing the you're you're going too superficial so like things like that would happen and I think there's like a they mentioned like an article in opium and absinthe and then my editor's just like you need to write the article, like put the article <laughs> in your book. And I was like, I have to write an article that was written in 1899 in the style of 1899 with yeah. the voice of a journalist. And so I had to read, I was reading through the New York times mm-hmm. from 1899 so that I could just be like, okay, this is what the layout looks like. This is because the, the voice from, you know, um, journalistic voices from the turn of the last century, they're different now. Oh yeah. They were different back then, you know? So I had to like, make sure that I wrote it in a way that actually made sense. It was, oh yeah. That was very challenging. I remember being kind of scared and being like, I'm going to do that. That's going to be so weird. That's so funny. Yeah. He was, your editor was like, no, you have to do it. You're like, oh, I had a feeling kind of thing. Yes, like, I know. Oh, I know. Okay. There's always that, God, that is like, it is like the one thing that you like, you know, you love having an editor because they make your work so much better, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. like they ask you to do things that are not 
uncomfortable sometimes yeah. that, that push you. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to push you to do your best. And, yeah. and that sometimes means pushing you to do something that you're sort of like, oh, but it's so hard. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I know, fine, I, I'll do it. You have no tr- uh, choice but to like trust them because that's what they're there for. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. When you have a good editor and you guys have a good, good relationship and there's mm-hmm. that trust there, then it, and, uh, you know, honestly, when you've been writing books for a while, when someone gives you advice about what to do, you know, immediately if you're like, okay, yeah, that's the right thing to do. Like you, you know, (laughs) there's always that, like you, you start to recognize like, yes, this will make the book better. Or, Mm -hmm. um, or when they, they ask something of you and you're like, that really doesn't fit, but like, I've had really good editors. And so like the vast majority of the time, you know, they make it, I would say every time, I don't really think I've had a, a, a problem when, an editor asked me to do something and I was like, I don't think that's a good idea. Right. Like, I, I think that's really wrong for the book. Like that's never actually happened to me. So I've been pretty lucky. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Cause I under, yeah, there's the relationship and the trust is, you know, and it's your baby. It's like, you know, you have to try to, you know, not be too attached to any one mm-hmm. thing and you have to be open-minded and you have to, you know, one pair of eyes versus a second pair of pro- professional eyes as well. So it's, it is, you know, I yes. imagine, yeah, it, it could be tricky to navigate. Kind of like to circle back a little bit. I want you to talking about like your uh, medical career mm-hmm. and then kind of like halfway through you were saying that you started um, branching out and writing stories. So how did you like discover like passion, if you would say, like, I feel like it was a little cliche, but how did you like discover your inclination or like for, for telling stories, for, for digging into your creative side? Mm-hmm. I was always really good at science. Like I was a biology major and pre-med and all that stuff in college. I was a English minor, which I think is kind of like telling. Um, but I, I was not one of those people. Like I had friends who would just like, you know, the night before a deadline, they would just like punch out this 10 page paper mm. and they would get an A on it. And it was like ugh. a struggle for me. I just, <laughs> I know that, ugh, yeah. I, it, you know, it's just, it was really hard for me. I, I would scrape by with these like A minus B pluses and be like, okay, I, mm. I did really good, you know? And I just remember being like, I just, I'm not one of those people who's uh, it's, it's easy for us to write. It's easy for me to write. So I went into medicine and I, I, I would keep dabbling like here and there. Like when I was in college, I took a creative writing course and I really, really enjoyed it, but there were like these stars in the class. And I just felt like I just didn't um. to them. And, and then like, I remember like, I, you know, I tried to do a short story contest, obviously didn't win. And, um, I just was always in the back of my mind. Like I would like to try, but I was full on into my career at that point. I was mm-hmm. like in med school and residency, that sort of thing. So it wasn't until I was actually working as like an attending physician. So I was like a full-time doctor taking care of a ton of patients and stuff like that. And, um, this one night I was taking care of a patient who was dying and I couldn't stop thinking about him. So I wrote an essay about what it was like to be looking and taking care of somebody who knew that their death was coming Mm. and were sort of like on this other side of Mm -hmm. the living. And I had heard people talk about this like when you get this terminal diagnosis, sometimes it feels like there's suddenly this veil between you and mm-hmm. there is, you are on the side of the, of the dying and they are all on the side of the living and you feel that separation very acutely. And I, so I wrote about what it was like to be on that other side of the veil and to take care of this patient. And I ended up submitting it to a journal. So a lot of medical journals have a humanity section okay. where you can submit an essay. So I submitted it like kind of like three o'clock in the morning after I'd written this essay and it got accepted. And I was like, oh my God, it's going right. to get published in the annals of internal medicine. This is amazing. And then I moved to Omaha. I had a third child. And then um, when, after she was born, I'd heard about this like writing group um, that put doctors together with poets and writers and put them together so that they could just sort of foster their creativity. 
And I was really shy about it. And I was just like, I kind of want to join the group and see what happens. And my husband was like, yeah, go for it. So I did. And when I was in that group, I started writing poetry. I was writing more essays. And um, about a year into it, I was like, I'm, I, I joined like every semester, I would just join it again. And I was in this thing for like a, a full year. And about a year into it, I was like, you know what? I just want to try to write a young adult novel because mm-hmm. this was in 2009, right? So mm. YA was in its heyday. Like mm-hmm. it was so much stuff coming out. Like, you know, Twilight was super famous. Yeah. And, and there were just so many books out there that were just so fun. And like, I was just enjoying reading them so much. Mm-hmm. And some of them were just absolutely, just beautifully, beautifully written. Um, Jennifer Donnelly, um, I think it's called A Northern Light, was one of the first ones that I wrote. It was just beautiful historical fiction. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to try it. I'll give myself a month. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'll give myself a month to write this book. And I will give myself a summer to see if I can get a literary agent. And mm. that's what I tried to do. And at the end of the summer, I was already writing another book. Oh, wow. And the uh, literary agents, I got, ta- I got rejections left and right. Mm-hmm. But some of the rejections would be like, hey, this is really good, but it's not for me. Mm. Timing is wrong or I have something that's too similar, but they would be mm. like, oh, it's good. If you have another, uh, another novel, just send it my way. So I was starting to get positive feedback and I was like, oh my God, I'm not a complete like <laughs> failure at this. Like people aren't saying like, you're terrible, like just just stop. You know, right. I didn't get any, <laughs> I got no responses that said, just stop, stop it. Just cut it out. <laughs> so then I wrote a second book, tried to get an agent with that. That went as far as me speaking to like an agent in the UK. Cause I had like, I queried in the U S and then I was like, the U S is not enough. They speak English in Canada. So I was querying <laughs> in Canada and then I was like, I'm going to the UK. So I started querying in like the UK and an agent was just like, I really love this. I want to represent it. And the rest of the team was just like, no, it's not quite for us. So it was still like getting closer and closer. And so that third book that I wrote was called control. And that was um, like a dystopian science fiction. Mm. And that one, I got my agent and that one got sold to Penguin. So it took, like, I just went, I did a deep dive. Like I was, I kind of still am. I basically became like obsessed with writing. Like I didn't do anything else Mm -hmm. in my free time. Like I didn't watch anything. (laughs) I would read, you know, books, but then I would be writing like, you know drop the kids off at school. And I have like 10 minutes before I got, I was like writing in my car. Like I, it was just oh, wow. really, really intense, which is, and I am a fast writer, but I, that, yeah. And that's, that's sort of how it started. And then I, um, I kind of kept going. I branched off into different things. Um, uh-huh. when my career stalled for like two years and I was sort of like, that's it, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to, I'm never going to sell another book again. And then, um, it's gotta Quacker, go back to being yes. a doctor. I, guess. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, I was still a doctor the whole time. Yeah. I was, was part-time. So I had more time to write and stuff like that. But, um, and so that's where quackery happened and the November girl happened because I, parted ways with my publisher and I was writing some different things. And then a beautiful poison, which they were like, this is not YA. You need to submit this to like the adult realm. And so that's how I sold a beautiful poison. So it kind of, it's really funny. It's sort of like, because I couldn't, because I was in a place where I was sort of like, I, I need to keep this career going. And so I'm going to have like, I'm going to try my hand at like multiple different things. So I did and it, and it worked. And, but the funny thing is that all three things that I was trying, which was now adult, Mm-hmm. nonfiction and taking a left turn into like fantasy mm-hmm. they all sold 
around the same time. And they all came out in 2017. Oh, so, wow. Okay. Yeah. And then next thing I knew I have careers in like YA and like yeah. <laughs> medical, medical nonfiction and right. historical fiction. And it's kind of been going and going. You're so. just like, you're, you're on a roll. Why not? <laughs> I'm just going to keep going with it. So I'm currently like right now, I'm actually um, under contract to work with um, the Star Wars franchise on a project. Oh. So nice continues to get weirder and weirder yeah. in a good way <laughs> yeah no hey we're you know you're in the right place for to talk about that if you wanted to that's exciting <laughs> though you know I mean that's so cool because I you know I always get interested about uh you know what authors a lot of the time it's it that's what they wanted to do that's what they started out doing and so then when I was like kind of looking into your background a little bit um to prepare mm-hmm. I found it so fa- I love your website by the way I love the design of it I love how you kind of just like combined you know it's it's like it's like tying your your professionalism into a little bow and putting it on on your website and I I love the look of it the feel of it I love the organization um <laughs> I love it too I've had yeah. it for a, over seven years now and it is about to change so take a snapshot because yeah, right? it's not like that anymore. <laughs> I actually I adore this website too and it's like you know for people who want to take a quick look at it because it's going to disappear like any literally like any day now it's going to disappear and there's going to be a new website up but there's a big logo that has like a globe and um, stethoscope, not stethoscope. Yeah. Stethoscope and like um, microscope and, and scissors and books and stuff like that. So it sort of like encompasses how I'm just a lot of different things. Yeah. No, I I love that. I loved it. I thought it was like super apt and like adorable too. And it was just very, very friendly and very telling. And so I, I loved it, but I think that's, yeah, so fascinating how you, you know, you started off becoming like a practicing doctor is a very intense and a lot of work. That's awesome that you still like you went for it. And then you discovered that, you know, cause writing for academia is so much different than writing for, you know, entertainment too. So it's like, you know, I have two master's degrees. So like I went to oh come from like a little bit of academia background too. So that's yeah. why when you said, Oh, people would write the night before and they'd get an A and I'm, that's what I was like ugh like because <laughs> I know that I, I know yeah. that like vibe that energy where you're just like oh like that's amazing but then like F you you know yes, <laughs> like, kind of like you know it's really funny I have like a funny little side story which is that um there's this really 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 well-known incredibly prolific um young adult author Melissa De La Cruz who writes also for children's and stuff like that. It's like, I think she has her own Disney imprint and stuff like that. And um, so she, we were friends in college and she was like one of those people who would be like, oh, I have to write this essay. And she would totally ace it. And I yeah. remember being like, <laughs> like the science brain in me, I'd be like, this is so hard. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but um, It but can I also think, be a little, you know, yeah, the subject matter has an effect on it too, for sure. True, true. And it was, I think a really, a huge eye-opening moment for me when I started to write and realized that I could actively get better at Mm -hmm. it. You know, I I wasn't like just stuck with this mindset and this state of being of like, I'm not a very strong writer and this is, this is as good as it's going to get. And that, and that's, I think something that I try to tell like um, younger people all the time who are getting started, who are like you, one, you can have more than one career mm-hmm. and, and that you don't have to like leave your creativity behind. If you decide that you're going to be an engineer or you're going to be a nurse or you're going to be whatever. And the second thing is that even if you think you're not good at something creatively, you can get better at it. Mm-hmm. It's like a muscle that you exercise. Like when the first time you were writing, 
you know, when you had like at the beginning of your first masters, you know, <laughs> you know your writing was probably at a certain level. And by the time oh, you yeah. finished your second masters, it was just probably above and beyond, like so yeah. different. Right. Yeah. I, I don't want to like cringe and, and, you know, <laughs> what, read any of my previous works, but you're absolutely right. It's trying to like absorb and appreciate uh, that growth, yeah. you know, and yeah. what you're learning. And I'm in and, and the challenge too. It's, I do appreciate that growth, but I also have no desire to like reflect that much <laughs> to like compare. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. So it's like, I think that there are a lot of people who who start writing and they, they look at people like, you know, like me or, and they're like, oh, she must write down. And like the muse just magically comes and it just comes right out of my <laughs> fingers, like lightning. And it's beautiful on the page. And I'm like, it, this, this takes a lot of work. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of, it takes a lot of effort to actually improve, to change and to be open to the fact that like, I could be better at this. Like I'm yeah. not as good. And I, I had that when I first started and maybe this was a good thing about having a first career and thinking I'm not really good at this was that when I started, I didn't have this chip on my shoulder. Like everything I write is amazing. And if you disagree, (laughs) you're all wrong. I didn't, I was the complete opposite. I was like, teach me, teach me everything. I was like, I'm doing this wrong. What do I do better? And I would like, look it up and stuff. So I was really, really just immersed in like, I will do whatever it takes to to get better. And so, and I think that my writing over the course of these three novels that I did, Mm -hmm. just, I remember I wrote all my, some of my friends would read them. And when I finished my third one, they finished it and they looked at me and they're just like, this one, I could have pulled this off a shelf at Barnes and Noble. They were like, this is so much better. Like, it's just different. It's, and then it was because I had been working at it really, really hard. Yeah, reading yeah. A lot. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of um, art and, and creativity is not just like, you know, it's not this really romanticized, like mm. here I am in my coffee and my, you know, <laughs> beautiful linen outfits and looking out at the mountains and yeah. like, write this novel it just springs my fingertips like it's not like that like I'm in my stained ass yoga pants drinking mm. my cold coffee mm-hmm. and my friend is texting me going like stop messing around and finish your deadline yeah. and I'm like okay <laughs> I'm just like writing 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 and it's so it's yeah it's not and a lot of it is very unglamorous but yeah that comes with the territory <laughs> no and, and that's so that it's all about your personality too and like your drive and you know trying not to be discouraged and rather just saying like well how can I how can I improve this? How can I correct this? How can I, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, I think what separates a lot of, you know, a lot of people who just, who don't receive it that well, I guess, you know, and versus people who are like, you seem like you wanted to, you wanted to get it right. And yeah. you wanted to, you didn't want to give up right away. Like you, you gave yourself like a, a, a window of time <laughs> to like, <laughs> and then you know, I say like, okay, well, right I'm past it. Yeah. <laughs> and then you ended up why get like two like three books at the same time like that's amazing that's amazing yeah. and I'm um, I'm lucky in that it did work out and I have an agent who like was like hey, you were writing all different things you were all over the place and now he's so used to it but I think <laughs> he was just like he's like can you just stick to one thing and I was like but I have this idea and I know right um <laughs> I couldn't really couldn't, I couldn't really help it it just happened that way so Okay, guess what? Got another one. <laughs> I have another one. Yeah, and I have some other ideas that are just so wacky and they are just not like nothing I've ever written. And I'm always sort of like, are people going to forgive me for this? <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. Who knows? That's so funny. Um, so just a couple more questions before we wrap up. With this story, there's a lot of interesting relationships and like, you know, events that happen, but kind of a more gen- generic general question is like, what were... um 
your favorite parts to write and like the other part of that is like what were like the most challenging parts to write okay um by and far my absolute favorite part to write was the makeover scene oh my goodness (laughs) (laughs) so there's a scene where Maggie goes to Felix's house and she's wearing her grubby overalls and Mm. like her clothes that she would normally wear to the Brooklyn Navy Yard to do her welding work and she shows up his house and he's like I'm not talking to her until she like takes a bath and she's appropriately dressed and she like meets me out in this like courtyard and so it's it's just a makeover scene just like you would see in any movie that you're Mm -hmm. like I love makeover scenes I had so much fun with it I was just like it's gonna be rose scented soap and there's gonna be oil in the bath and she's gonna have her nails filed it's it's gonna be amazing so it's sort of like anybody who loves to do dress up will love that scene because it is um you know the ugly ducking duckling the dirty grubby duckling Mm -hmm. sort of turning into the swan and I I had so much fun writing that one wrote itself um the hardest scene to write probably Okay, as always, first chapters, incredibly mm. difficult to write. Maybe one of the most difficult, most painful things for me to do is to write the first chapter because mm. there's so much. I have this entire book in my head that is perfection. <laughs> and I have an open page that's, I got a page that's like blank. And I know yeah. that everything I put down is not going to be perfection. And that's mm. a real, that having to deal with that uh, is just very painful. So, um, <laughs> I, and I crow about it every time. Like every time I have to like start at the beginning of something, I just complain about it. Like I complain about it on Instagram and I complain about it on Facebook. I'm just like, ah, the first page, I hate it. <laughs> but that would be one. And then the other thing I think is that was really difficult to write is towards the end is um, the climax. There's mm-hmm. like, a, there's a, there's a fighting. So when, anytime there's a fight scene, I struggle a little. Cause I'm like, I'm afraid it's going to look like a, a bad graphic novel. It's like, pow. Oh, <laughs> bam, Kablooey. you know, the, uh, you know, I'm afraid it's going to read poorly. It and I know tricky. Some like, unless are... you have a camera, like where you can just like, you know how it looks or you kind of know how you want it to look, but it's like describing that it's, it can be challenging for sure. It can be challenging. And I know somebody who are like, I love writing fight scenes and other people are like, but I hate kissing scenes. And the other people are the opposite. Like I yeah. love the kissing scenes and I hate that. So, um, yeah. So some parts were harder than others for mm-hmm. sure. I think the Brooklyn Navy Yard scenes were all difficult because every time I wrote them, I had to stop and do research. I had to stop oh, and yeah. look at a map. I had to stop and being like, okay, what do they call this again? Because I had to get the details right. Mm-hmm. So those were, those were particularly I, I, like, technically difficult for me. Mm. Um, I learned a lot about arc welding. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> More than I would ever choose to know, but I learned about arc welding and and, um, you know, what all the terms were called and like, you know, read lots of interviews of um, female welders and what yeah. they would go through and how like, you know, the spatter would like sizzle through their mm. shirt and like burn their brassiere. And <laughs> I was like, oh God, it was not <laughs> difficult to do. So lots of challenges, but lots of, uh, lots of fun parts to write too. Yeah, absolutely. And I did, I did love that you kind of gave that um, path to Maggie because you know, this whole time Will's like, oh God, I don't know how long she's going to last. And then she's even like surprising herself after like, mm. you know, cause she gets some praise or she, she kind of catches on and on and like, she gets it down and, and she's like impressed with herself. I love that. I don't know. I just felt like it was a very, um, a very cool thing for her to do. Me <laughs> too. To, like, yeah. Me too. And that was also, um, to be completely honest, that was also on the advice of an editor. And so mm. Maggie was a little bit more kind of weak sauce um, mm-hmm. while she was like working in the Navy yard. And the editor was just like, I think you should give her something to be like super proud of yeah. because it, it changes 
her footing with Will and it yeah. changes her footing with everything around her. And, um, and I was like, oh my God, that's brilliant. And, mm-hmm. and that's why you see, you see her change in that way. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really remarkable that when she comes back from this, um, you know, she's coming back from the Navy Yard and she's like really having these great days and, and she does that like makeover and she's looking yeah. gorgeous and will sort of like, all of a sudden he's sort of like, I used to be the person taking care of you. I can't give you mm-hmm. the trappings that you're wearing. He's like, I can't give you those things. I can't. And all of a sudden he feels like everything that he thinks that he is, is wrong. Mm-hmm. Everything that he thinks that he's thought about his sister is wrong. And I, I loved, I, I don't mean to be mean, but I like, I love doing that to him because mm-hmm. I think that when you throw people off, when you throw characters off, it's so illuminating on so yeah. many levels. It's like really fascinating and it makes you want to read more and be like, well, what else are they going to see? Right. <laughs> what else is going to happen here? Yeah. Cause it's almost like, and, and there was a part of her that, yeah, well, of course, like she, you know, she loves it. She's getting her own little makeover. Like she secretly loves it, but she secretly, it seems like she always, you know, she had it in her, like she's yes. not totally out of her element. Like she no, exactly. is a little comfortable. Yeah. You know, so shockingly comfortable. Like she comes home saying like, yeah, I could do this. She's yeah. like, I could. she's like, I could see myself uh, living this life. I could see myself appreciating this and deserving this. Like, yeah. I think, I think yeah. maybe, and she starts like, that's like the little thing that sort of enters her mind. She's like, maybe I deserve this. Right. And it empowers her in a way that she'd never had before. It's, which is, yeah, it's like, wow, the power of clothing. It's like armor. Yeah. Lipstick. It's- it really is. It's so crazy. And like, especially at that time where so many people, that was like what was almost expected of people who were uh, of a certain socioeconomic class could afford the makeup and, and the clothing mm-hmm. and all that. And you could tell, you know, and then there's, you know, people like Maggie where she just never cared about it before. She never you know, yeah. it didn't cross her mind. They were just kind of about survival or she was right. doing right. her part, you know, for the war effort. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's that Ruby, she's just like pulling them along. And, and then, you know, other things happen that Ruby had nothing to do with it. <laughs> she's yeah. just like, yep. you know, it's, I, I really loved it. it. It was that part of it was super fun. I imagine. Yeah. Like how you said, it was like fun to write. It's, it is, I understand it's fun to like put your character characters through a little bit of of trouble and yeah you know challenge you kind of have to otherwise if they're not challenged and just kind of it gets kind of boring you know like you you need to you need to throw them off kilter a little bit and that was that was one of the fun parts of um being able to have maggie do that and be like yeah you know they're lean lean times and nobody's got nobody's dressing up nice nobody's got Mm -hmm. all that stuff and it's so it's particularly shocking when she gets that opportunity and it sort of like opens her eyes about like possibilities right exactly like yeah like a world she didn't really think about it just never crossed her mind and then when she got a taste of it she was like oh like just a couple more questions so what advice would you give to ruby to will and to maggie (laughs) oh my god at the beginning of the book or the end of the book (laughs) you say the beginning i'm gonna say the beginning because we don't want to give anything away right so at the beginning of the book what i would tell will is not to underestimate anybody Mm mm-hmm that would be one because I think that he thinks he's got everybody figured out. Mm-hmm. The advice I would give to Ruby would be, I know this doesn't make any sense because she's so fearful would be to, to, um, to be more open. Mm-hmm. Of course, if, of course, if they do all of these things, it would ruin the book. Right. So it's kind of funny <laughs> that I'm giving this advice. And then what I would tell, what I would tell Maggie is I would tell her she was loved because mm-hmm. I think it's really clear early on and she just doesn't believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, 
if these three characters actually took my advice, then the book won't actually happen. So yeah. 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 But that's what I would say to them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Perfect. Future projects then like you would, what have you got next on your plate? So I am working on a Star Wars project, which I'm not actually allowed to talk about oh, yeah, no, in, that's in any kind of detail, but yeah, that's, that's, that's the next thing on my list. And then um, I have several other book ideas that I'm sort of, they're just jingling around in my mind and I have to put them down on paper and get some proposals written and stuff like that. Mm. But Star Wars comes first. And then after that, I will be writing some more stuff and we'll see what happens. I'll let you know. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Oh, that's so exciting. The Half-Life of Ruby Fielding uh, comes out May 1st. And also got to check out your website before it goes away. (laughs) (laughs) And you're on um, Instagram and Twitter and all that good stuff, right? Absolutely. So yeah, I'm on Instagram at Lydia Kang. I'm on Twitter at Lydia Y. King mm-hmm. and um, Facebook. I think I'm author Lydia King. So you should be able to find me all over the place. Awesome. Sounds good. Okay. Thank you so much. This was so fun. And, thank you so um, much, Megan. you know, yeah, and we'll, we'll keep an eye out for, you know, I'll keep an eye out for your name and what other projects you, your name is attached to. Sounds good. Thanks so much all for right. having me. All right. And that was Lydia King, author of the half-life of Ruby fielding. Um, it's available now. So links to purchase along with how um, following Lydia uh, are in the show notes. So please check that out. And, you know, as always, please rate, review, subscribe and check out my book reviews on the nerdcantina.com. Talk to you later.